Thanks, uh, Guy. There's a, a slight error in there insofar as my novel, strictly speaking, isn't set in the First World War. It's set immediately before and after it uh, for reasons which my paper will make clear. My novel, The Blessing, had its beginning in what little I know about my maternal grandfather's life story. He was born in Donaghadee, Northern Ireland, and lived and worked in Belfast until he was 25 years old, first in Mackey's foundry and then as a tram driver. He was an Orangeman. In 1912, he signed the Solemn Oath and Covenant, pledging to defend the North from home rule by any means necessary. A year later, he left Belfast for Manchester for reasons that are not entirely clear. There's a family story that a woman was involved. It seems likely he was running away. He drove trams in Manchester until 1914, when, at the outbreak of the war, he volunteered. He served in France and Flanders with the 21st Service Battalion of the Manchester Regiment. They were at the Somme, Arras, and Passchendaele. Like many other British soldiers of the First War, his military records were destroyed in the Blitz. My knowledge of his service, then, is incomplete and pieced together from unit records, photographs, and hearsay. I've no other documents to help me out. I know that he served for at least two years overseas and that he was wounded, probably at Arras or Passchendaele. A shell splinter took away a slice of his shoulder and damaged one lung. Though he survived the war, he suffered from its effects for the rest of his life. He died before I was born. I suspect it's precisely because I don't know a great deal about my grandfather that the outline of his life story provoked my imagination. After various trips to the battlefields of France and Flanders, which are also necessarily trips to cemeteries, and a visit to Belfast in 1999, I began to write my novel. The character I've created, Jack Young, isn't my grandfather. Some of the things that happened to him didn't happen to my relative, or not as far as I know. However, the shape of my grandfather's life between 1912 and 1920 is roughly followed. This presented a massive challenge, largely because of the war years. I drafted the first 40,000 words or so of the book in 2004. This first part of the novel developed a troubled love story between the Protestant Jack Young and a Catholic woman, Kathleen McCafferty, against the backdrop of the troubles in Belfast in 1912. It followed Jack, now separated from Kathleen, to England and took the narrative to late in 1913. I stopped writing in 2004 because I couldn't see how to deal with the war. The problems were several. The length and scale of the conflict seemed impossible to articulate without expending many thousands of words. I knew I wanted the denouement of my story to take place in Belfast in 1920, amid the further violent troubles that erupted there in that year. It seemed to me if I tried to convey something of the intensity and violence of trench warfare with any kind of realism, it would overwhelm the impact of the civil strife I was interested in exploring through my story. 
the famous fictions, memoirs, and poetry of World War I by Sassoon, Graves, Blunden, and Frederick Manning, to name only the most famous, and the poetry of Owen, Sassoon, Graves, and Gurney also cast a long shadow. They mean that anyone approaching trench warfare via fiction is in danger of merely writing pastiche. There are, too, inherent difficulties in writing combat scenes, which even these illustrious writers sometimes fail to deal with adequately. The risk is that depictions of violence and suffering will inadvertently provoke a pleasurable frisson rather than a horrified repugnance. It could even be argued, I think, that it's impossible to render the experience of combat accurately in language. Narrative, by its nature, tends to impose order and significance upon events. I think the chaotic brutality of battle often evades novelist and historian alike. In the absence of answers to these problems, I shelved the project. It was only when I went back to the book in 2011 that the obvious answer to my dilemma suggested itself. The solution was to leave the war years out altogether and move straight to 1920. I would render the war indirectly through the memories and experiences of Jack Young and show how those experiences impacted upon his psychology and changed his life. But still there were problems. I'd described Jack Young's life as a tram driver in part one and simultaneously shown his interest in gardening and his ambition one day to be a landscape gardener. Something in me resisted taking him back to tram driving. It seemed to offer very little by way of dramatic impact and, of course, separated him completely from his war experience. It was while pondering this conundrum that I suddenly had an idea. For some reason, I remembered my visits to the war cemeteries in France and Belgium, and particularly those around Ypres. Landscape gardening, I thought to myself. Who made the cemeteries? How did they come into existence? Who built them? What was the time scale? These questions excited me because I had a long-held interest in the paradoxes of remembrance. The way, in the first instance, remembrance serves the needs of those who have fought and survived and those who have lost loved ones in the conflict. The necessity is to mark participation and loss in war as meaningful, significant, noble. It is in this way that war is made sacred. The problem, of course, is that this making sacred can very easily mask the awfulness of combat and killing and inspire following generations with the idea that fighting and killing is noble, sacred, ultimately significant. The peaceful acres of white stones that litter the landscape of Belgium and northern France might be said to conceal as much as they reveal about the conflict they memorialize. But what about the experience of making the cemeteries? I immediately began to research their construction. As I did so, I realized that here were the answers to the problems of my novel in relation to World War I. Though I haven't time here to render a detailed account of the development of what is now the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, I can, I think, outline a few salient details which I found inspirational for my purposes. 
Sir Fabian Ware's book, The Immortal Heritage, is the source of most of the information I gleaned and is an excellent starting point for anyone who wishes to know more than my remarks can easily encompass. More recently, Julie Summers has written well on the subject. The National Library of Australia copy, hold copies of their work. Fabian Ware was the founder of what, of what was then the Imperial War Graves Commission and is now the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. In 1914, he was 45 years old and therefore too old to fight. He volunteered to serve with the Red Cross where he was initially employed to manage a mobile unit engaged in transporting the wounded to field hospitals and in collecting stragglers who may have lost their way. Ware also instructed his men to take careful note of the location of any graves, for the Red Cross saw it as part of their work to supply information to relatives of the fallen as to the whereabouts of their loved ones. The need for an organisation to oversee cemeteries for the war dead emerged from this work. The Imperial War Graves Commission was granted a royal charter in May 1917. It may be of interest to note that the High Commissioners for Australia, New Zealand, Canada and South Africa were on the board and India and Newfoundland were also represented. The Prince of Wales was the Commission's first president, Lord Derby its chairman and Fabian Ware was vice chair. It was Ware, however, who continued to lead the policy and planning for the Commission, and it was he who sent the architects, Sir Edwin Lutyens and Herbert Baker, along with Charles Aitken, the director of the Tate Gallery, to France in 1917 to observe the battlefields for themselves and return with some recommendations for developing a design template for the cemeteries. Rudyard Kipling who had lost his only son at the Battle of Luce in 1915, was appointed literary advisor to the commission, and Lutyens approached his friend, the famous landscape gardener and writer, Gertrude Jekyll, to advise on horticultural matters. When the war ended, work on the cemeteries was preceded by that of graves concentration units. The circumstances of wartime burials meant that graves were scattered over wide areas or clustered in numbers too small to form a cemetery. It was therefore necessary to designate sites for the cemeteries and to move bodies to those sites. It was the work of the graves concentration units to do this, as well as to remove previously unburied bodies from the battlegrounds. Between the end of the war and September 1921, these units moved 204,650 bodies and reburied them. By 1920, the War Office Directorate in command of this work began to hand over charge of the cemeteries to the Imperial War Graves Commission and work on the architecture and landscaping of the cemeteries began. It was in this practical work that I found employment for my character, Jack Young. When I read that by 1921, the commission had employed 1,362 gardeners on the Western Front, and that all of them had served in the war, and that many of them worked on cemeteries near where they had served, I sensed the imaginative possibilities. More details enticed me further. 
In the early days of the Commission's work, the gardeners worked in mobile gardening parties. A group of men would set out from their billets on a Monday morning in a wagon piled with supplies, and they would go and camp out by the cemetery they were working on for the week. The early labour involved levelling, uprooting dead trees, carting earth before they could begin to sow grass. Later came the planting of flowers and roses in accordance with Gertrude Jekyll's notions. It was her idea that the English country garden should provide the model for the plantings in the cemeteries. I read of Jekyll's involvement with a wonderful sense of serendipitous synchronicity. It was like a gift to me, for in part one of the novel, I had already written a scene in which Jack Young borrows gardening books authored by Gertrude Jekyll. It felt as if he was destined to do this work. The possibilities opened up to me of imagining the motivations of these dedicated gardeners and how it might feel to tend the graves of one's erstwhile comrades and to participate in the transformation of that shattered landscape and to make from it places of beauty and peace. The obvious contrasts of soldier and gardener excited me too. The movement from destruction to creation, a working with nature rather than against her to create beauty rather than ugliness. During the war and immediately afterwards, some graves had been planted with wildflowers, poppies, cornflowers, white chamomile and yellow charlock. Wherever possible, these were retained and supplemented with low-growing low plants, nasturtiums, dwarf lupins, alyssum and canditoff, which gave bright bursts of colour against the grass, but also prevented soil from splashing up the headstones when it rained. Thanks to Jekyll, the English rose also became a feature of many of the early cemeteries. Red and white roses were planted between headstones so that every name was shaded by a rose. It should be noted that at first the graves were marked with temporary wooden crosses bearing the name, rank, regimental number, religion, unit and date of death. These crosses were then replaced by uniform headstones made from Portland stone or Hopton wood limestone. Between 1920 and 1923, more than 4,000 headstones were shipped to France each week. The uniformity of the headstones and the choice of a headstone rather than a cross was in keeping with the principle established early on by Ware and fought for, him, fought for by him and his supporters subsequently against considerable opposition. There were debates in Parliament, but for once a generous ideal prevailed. It was the notion that there should be no distinctions made within the cemeteries of rank, nation, colour or creed. The fallen were to be gathered together and buried as they had fought, side by side. Given the stratified and class-conscious nature of English society, this constituted a remarkably forward-thinking idea and one that was ideal for my purposes in the novel, given that I was exploring through my characters the terrible and destructive dimensions of religious bigotry and violent nationalism. 
to have Jack Young involved in creating these vast monuments to the democracy of the dead seemed entirely fitting. While he's working in the cemetery, he encounters the grave of a 16-year-old boy with whom he served. The story of Jack's involvement in the boy's life and death forms a significant narrative strand and enables me to write about Jack's experience of the war and of fighting without, I hope, falling into the difficulties mentioned earlier. In researching the construction of the battlefield cemeteries, I found in them both an inspiration and an irony that the democratic ideals for which we say the soldiers fought are embodied most perfectly in these fields of the dead. It remains for the countries which sent them to die, for us who follow, to exert ourselves against ongoing divisions of rank, creed, color, and nationality, and thus fulfill their inheritance. <laughs>